0: Good morning, Rebecca. I'm excited to interview you because I know you better than most of the women I'll be interviewing on this podcast, and I'm a huge fan of yours. My first question I want to ask you, which we didn't ask in our pre-conversation here is, do you consider yourself a badass? Do you see yourself as the badass you are?
1: That's such a funny and kind of loaded question because like my conditioned response is to be like yeah of course I know I'm a badass because I'm being recorded and I'm going to say that but two minutes before you started this podcast I actually said I'm not a badass I'm just a fat ass and I feel like thinking about that that sort of self like deprecating talk that women do constantly where we can't just say yeah I'm a badass like Duh, you know, (laughs) but, but do I feel like that all the time? Some days I do and some days I don't. So I would say today, yeah, you got me on a good day. I'm feeling, I'm feeling pretty bad today.
0: (laughs) Well, you, you are absolutely a badass. And that's one of the things I want to do with this podcast is make sure that all women realize that they are badasses. And I think being born a very privileged white man, I came out of the womb being told that that about myself and and life has affirmed that, or, or I've been affirmed by that. You know, by other people and outside forces. So I appreciate your honesty, um, and hopefully, by the end of this, when we talk about all the amazing things you've done in your life and are still doing, that you can really, you know, own it all the time. Mm.
1: It's a dream, baby. It's a dream, but 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 we can work on it.
0: <laughs> all right, I, I know a lot about you and your current um, projects, but what I don't know is kind of your backstory. Can you take us through kind of um, where you grew up, where you went to school, kind of your winding path of your career?
1: Hmm, a career. I feel like career is a strong word <laughs> for the things I've done, this collection of hobnobbing DIY, putting it together, uh lifestyle, I guess you can call it a career. Um, but originally, I I grew up outside of New York City. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of it. It's like a little, little city on the East Coast uh, and in a suburb uh, called Westchester County, which is about The county actually butts up against the Bronx. If you're familiar with any of the geographical location of the area, it goes Bronx County, Westchester County. Um, So I grew up there. I am the product of a loving generation marriage. Um, If people don't know what that is, loving uh, Virginia versus loving was the or loving versus Virginia was the the case that um, made interracial marriage legal in the United States. And so my parents met in New York City um, in the like 1970, I guess would have been about that time. Um, And I have some I have two siblings and that's sort of my background. That sounds really boring just as I'm saying it, but I'm like, I, you know, I grew up outside New York City. I grew up in a mixed uh, like an interracial household. My father's black. My mother was white. and that is a huge part of like my identity and my work and the things that I have done. So it does absolutely like is relevant <laughs> to my work, uh, particularly my work around race and identity and mixed race identity, multiracial identity.
0: Oh, that, that's, that's a good start because I do want to dive deeper into that. I did not know about the what you talked about about the court cases in interracial marriage. Well, and you know, I, I it's a funny
1: that... thing. I'll interrupt you on that though because Loving versus Virginia, The federal judge in Virginia who sent that court case to the Supreme Court um, was actually my great uncle on my mom's side. Um, And so it was it was kind of that was 1967 and my parents got married in 1971. So can kind of (laughs) they didn't know they were going to legalize the marriage uh, of my of my my mother and my father. You know, they didn't know that was coming down the road right into their own family. I'm, I'm very curious, and I've never had the chance to ask, and we can go into it, but I'm very curious about what that decision maybe meant to my family at the time. Um, but anyway, that's like a, <laughs> a separate a separate conversation, I think.
0: Really, um, something I would like to to learn more from you about is growing up. Um as a young person that is mixed race, how did that impact your identity and how did that show up different experiences that that showed up for me? I'm very privileged. I'm coming in the awareness of my privilege as I get older. So I would just love for you to explain a little more about how, um, growing up with uh, mixed race parents and your own culture, how that factored into kind of the formation of who you are.
1: I think this question, I recently was talking to, um, um, I don't know if you know, W. Kamau Bell. He has a show on uh, CNN. It's called United Shades of America. I really recommend it. It's about race in America. It's, ex- it's excellent. But um, we were t- having a, a sort of a discussion about mixed race identity and what that means for the children and so on and so forth. And for me, because I'm from that generation, that I, I, I like that phrase, that term loving generation. But when I was growing up, we weren't mixed. We were black. So there was never and I'm thinking about this also from like a, a checking a box, you know, standpoint, like we didn't have an option to pick more than one race when I was a child. And so because of these sort of, you know, the rules around white supremacy, people may have heard of the it's a hypodescent, which is the one drop rule. People may hear that if you have one drop of black blood makes you black. Um, and now i feel like there's sort of a more nuanced conversation based on like historical context around that but for me as a kid growing up it just meant that even though people were confused about what my racial identity was based on my phenotypes because they couldn't place me and i would be somewhat racially ambiguous i always identified as black um as i as i got older I, I and I you know the things I was learning and I sort of um, I became more active in any community that I I sort of you know uh, find myself in but that was always like a strong thread for me as I'm I'm black my mom's white I'm black and I think that as this multiracial conversation has sort of been has started because of the the changing demographics of the country too I mean, mixed-race multiracial Americans are the fastest growing demographic in the country and that as you've seen um as we've seen quite tragically this past weekend uh not sure when when this podcast will air but we all bore witness to a horrific hate crime by a white supremacist in buffalo new york and i think that the idea his motivation was that they're being replaced. And part of the big fear in white supremacy was race mixing. And part of the big fear right now, as we're looking nationally at Roe versus Wade being overturned and abortion being outlawed, these are, are laws that, you know, came about that were not in the constitution, as like originalists said, including interracial marriage, including um, you know, miscegenation, which is the marriage or cohabitation of men and women who are different races and so I I feel like I'm going off on like a rant on it but it it it's it's all of those things impact me and my work and my identity but what I what I guess what I what I'm saying and I feel like I've had to say it my whole life it is something I talk about my race my identity is something that I'm I'm fairly comfortable speaking on but first and foremost I'm black and that is that for me that's the end of it Um, But when people want to start talking about it in my experience and what happened to me in life and all of those things, like, I'm happy to talk about multiracial and mixed race identity and what it's like to be a person who grew up in two cultures. In a white supremacist society where we live in a racial caste system, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Where black is at the bottom and people think that I'm an abomination or whatever, you know? So when you have that growing up, of course it's going to impact you. And of course it's going to like influence how I think and talk about race. And without putting too much of my, my, per- my family's story out, I will say though that it was quite a scandal when my mother married my father. And I will also say... That the first time in my life that I remember my grandmother, my white grandmother, introducing me in public as her granddaughter, I was 27 years old.
0: Wow, um, that's yeah, astonishing for me, and 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 I'm sure too. Straddling different cultures is also a difficult part of it.
1: So I would say that for me, yeah, I mean. I feel like that's pretty pretty standard in most people's. I've gathered stories around mixed race identity um through a previous project, all mixed up or changing racial identities. And I think that it's it's something that I as a black American don't like to to wham wham about it like publicly because I know that I have Extra privileges because I am closer to whiteness, or I have pro- I have proximity to whiteness. Um, uh, so I don't try to you know make it about that, but I will say, of course, it's like a challenge and a struggle, and it shouldn't be. It really shouldn't, but it is because of our historical context, because of the you know institutional racism, because of all of those things, and and so. It's, it's something that I would like, I like to have a space for. And that's why, like, if, you know, for, for people who are listening, like I, before in the before times, that's what I call, you know, before the pandemic, (laughs) but in the before times, I used to have an event that I did here in the neighborhood actually called More Than One Box. Um, And it's, I called it a mixed gathering. And it was sort of for people who are in. Um, mixed marriages or who have multiracial children or have adopted children of a different race. Um, And so just kind of trying to make that space, particularly in a community like Central Park, which I know is majority white. And I know that this is a place that was always marketed as a place that would be safe and welcoming for interracial couples and their families. and so I thought this was sort of a natural place to to do that event. And and I think that also proximity, the locations, because actually Denver and Colorado has a has a long history um, of having these sort of like multiracial communities and these like intersectional movements. They're here. Um, but we don't not we don't necessarily see it or hear about it.
0: That is amazing i didn't know you did that before and that's wonderful and you need to you need to bring it back again when i you... think we
1: will actually i've been trying to to plan it it's been um it's been challenging for me as far as my first personal story goes i don't mind saying that i don't have like a regular brain like the regular people And so um, my executive function is quite low. (laughs) And so organizing um, an event uh, where I still feel like, you know, I'm nervous because of the pandemic and risk and things like that. So we we did it virtually in 2020. We skipped 2021 because it was just too much for me. But so I'm really hoping 2022, maybe August or September, we'll be able to get get it going back up. So I don't know. Follow me on Twitter for that. I don't know. <laughs> I'll let you know.
0: <laughs> that is that is wonderful. All right, let's take a kind of a Twitter topic. Tell me what is wonderful about being a black woman. Give me some things that are that are wonderful about being a black woman.
1: I mean, look at me. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think that um, having that strong sense of of your ancestors, survived they survived things that were unimaginable to us truly i mean i i think about it even in the case of like my my father who's still who's still with us but like the kinds of experiences that he had in his life versus the account like what my life is like now um so I think that 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 history of legacy and strength and knowing that uh, a poet that I love, her name is uh, she's she's local. Her name is Dominique Dominique Christina, and she said that to me once. She said, "We're all ascended." She doesn't use the word descended; she uses the word ascended. We're all ascended from a superhero because somebody in our back in our line they they made it. And I think like kind of tapping into that sometimes really does give me a lot of of internal strength when I think about where I am today versus where my grandmother was when she was my age. So I don't and know if that amazing. really answered
0: the question, but <laughs> that, that did and um, gives me goosebumps to hear you you speak that way and you're exactly right, that the power and I love the term ascended. Um, speaking of Ascension, I want to hear a little bit about your, um, educational path. So after high school, in New York, where did you go from there and, and tell me about all the education you've done?
1: I went to a state school, um, SUNY Fredonia, which is, uh, west of, of Buffalo. Um, and the school itself was one of two in the SUNY system that had a BFA program in acting. So there were two schools. You had to audition. I auditioned at Fredonia and I was accepted into the into the BFA program. And so I was um, I majored in acting. (laughs) And I think that's funny. I don't I'm laughing at it because then two years into the program, I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. And I don't want this like BFA. And I, I kind of they call it dropping. It's not really dropping. I, I don't I think that's the wrong way to think about it. But I dropped down to a BA. so I could take other courses and I could pick up a minor. So I minored in Spanish. Um, so I have a degree in theater in Spanish. And I speak Spanish because when you ask about my my race identity story, most of people think that I'm Latina. And so growing up in New York, everybody thought that I was Puerto Rican or Dominican. And I actually did learn to speak Spanish. And I am totally fluent (laughs) in Spanish. So it was it was a kind of a no brainer for me to do that in in school. But I just wanted a more like well-rounded education. I didn't like um, I did sort of just I don't know. That's a weird conversation. Rebecca, stop yourself, darling. Anyway, college was weird. Okay, I went to college and then after college, Then I this is funny, this is like so like I feel like disappointing (laughs) to my father. But then I (laughs) I graduated and I I was supposed to move to San Francisco because I thought I was going to be like a slam poet living in San Francisco. That was like what I wanted to do and I was all ready to go and I got into I didn't have my driver's license, though, and I was supposed to drive cross country. And I, I had a little I got into a car accident while learning to drive driving my friend's car we're still friends to this day so don't worry sorry Adrian and. uh, (laughs) crashed her car learning to drive and then I ended up that like changed my whole thing and I ended up having to spend all of my driving money to pay for the car accident. And I also was terrified to drive, so I couldn't get my license after that. And so instead of moving to San Francisco, I moved to Albany, New York, which is the capital of New York State, for people who don't know. And a nickname for the city is Smallbany because it's so small. Uh, But I did. I did. And I went out while I was there, I actually became an AmeriCorps volunteer. And that sort of kind of got me, I think, um, on my path to being a a public servant, you know, versus being a movie star or a poet or, you know, I think that that sort of changed where things were going. So I did that, went to, stayed in uh, New York for a year doing that um, AmeriCorps program and then... As fate would have it, there was a professional core AmeriCorps program that had opened up in San Francisco and I applied and I was accepted. And I did end up moving to San Francisco the next year. And so I was in the Bay Area for years um, and then working in after school programming, working with with youth until uh, I moved to Japan in 2006. I'm so old. Anyway, this story is boring for anyone who's listening. Sorry, I moved to Japan and then I went to Spain and then I went to Mexico for a couple of years before I ended up uh, here in Colorado. So I was just kind of traveling, flying by the seat of my pants, came to Colorado. Yes.
0: I would like to interject and I get this from, and I think more from women than men is thinking that your story isn't interesting. You've just told me that you traveled all over the country. You're putting good into the world with the jobs you have. Now you're traveling all outside of the country, which is fascinating. I don't want to get too much into all those situations because we don't have time for it, but oh my gosh, this is not boring at all. And for anybody who is listening, like stop apologizing for this kind of crap because that to me is like you are fascinating and your story is fascinating. I'd love to dive more into it. So so keep traveling around the world here. Uh, keep well, on the chat.
1: I did. I took I took a few trips around the world until I ended up weirdly in Colorado. And I feel like I got here and my and I I think that that, that's interesting for people, you know, to know how what my affiliation with Denver is. I I got a job working at the Denver Public Library, actually. Um, And that was what sort of turned me into a, a Denverite, I think, because I worked in branches because when I moved here, as you had mentioned at the top of the show, talking about the demographics of the neighborhood, one of the things that happened for me is I couldn't believe how white it was here. I I mean, I was like, whoa, a little bit. But then when I started working at all these different branches in the library, I was in neighborhoods, you know, I was on the west side, I was in the far north side. I worked in, you know, um, Barnum and uh, Hadley and Montbello and Hamden and seeing just some of the different, like, you know, communities, so it was really It showed me that Denver is more than what people think it is as this like totally white city. That there are, you know, a lot of, there is diversity as, you know, saying there are black and brown people here. There are uh, recent immigrants here. There are all kinds of people here, but you just don't see them um, because they're marginalized in the city. If you, I mean, that's like a whole... (laughs) A conversation about, you know, how the city is designed and, and all of that. But but uh yeah, so so then I started um I worked at this job at the library. I just figured, oh, I'll just hang out here for a little bit. I was a nomadic free spirit kind of person. And I fell in love with that library work. I will tell you right now, I fell in love with it. And they encouraged me to go to library school. They I, I applied for a scholarship at the time. They um, uh, Laura Bush actually She's the only good Bush to me, (laughs) Ms. Laura, (laughs) and it's because she was a librarian and she loved it. And I had a, I, I was able to go to get my master's degree at the University of Denver um, as part of a a scholarship program for um, black and brown librarians and also Spanish speaking librarians. And as I had mentioned before, hablo espanol, so then I, I became kind of more entrenched in Denver, I guess, at that time, until we left. <laughs>
0: and that and That's amazing. And I think librarians and libraries in general are such a wonderful part of our society and really forward thinking to me, like the fact that libraries use all this technology and they zoom in these books and now with books on tape, and we'll get into your film, which can be um, rented at the library now too. That's amazing. You don't need to
1: rent anything from the library because it's free. You just borrow it, Dan. You just borrow it. <laughs>
0: Fair enough. Noted. Um, and that's where you became a filmmaker, got back into filmmaking, right? Can you talk to me about that, how yeah. the library got you into that?
1: So, so it's so funny because I do, uh, people ask me, that. I've always had sort of a hobby of making films, of making video. And when I worked at the library, that was something my manager at the time, she knew I could kind of make these shorts. And they weren't they weren't very good, I mean, but they were better than anything anyone else could do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I got I was able to to kind of start getting into that because I was making some video programming to sort of explain what we were doing at the library. Speaking of the forward thinking, we had these kind of very um progressive programming that I loved that was supporting our, our communities. And it was sort of hard to just like say it on when you just say, oh, we have 15 laptops in a room. It wasn't really capturing all of people's applications getting filled out or job interviews or learning, you know, all the things that we we were doing at the time. So I started on that. And then I made my first film that I felt like was like a real film. And it was called What Makes a Mother. And it was interviews. It was just some um, it was just sit down interviews with moms and their children talking about talking about motherhood. And we we put the film together um, with a woman named Trish, she doesn't live in the neighborhood, but she sure is a badass. Uh, Trish Jolentino, and she has a company called Stories Not Forgotten. And we we made this this sort of beautiful short documentary, and we screened it at the library, and we have screened it at some Mother's Day events, and it is available. Um, I think it's on Facebook. It's just a you know, it's, it's free.
0: <laughs> what did you? What were the takeaways of what was kind of what is a mother? What makes a mother?
1: um that's such a great question because i kept asking everyone that and everyone had different answers and they were all quite quite beautiful um and i do i do recommend checking it out i mean it's very sweet i feel like and it's also something it's meant to be watched like with your mom if you're lucky enough to still have your mom um to the the to sort of inspire you to have that conversation those kinds of conversations um with your mother so for me as far as my mom passed away that was was also part of um a lot of my work i think is sort of dedicated to my mother um as i look look back on it now but that's such a deep question and i think that I almost like can't answer it because I feel like all of the answers for it will feel like trite and it doesn't encompass everything that like being a mother is. And I feel like you can't take that out of also being a woman in a gross patriarchal like (laughs) – society where like nothing we do ultimately is ever really respected and like we don't even make the same amount of money and that like I couldn't accrue any paid time off because I was always having to take time off because I was sick or my kid was sick and I usually got sick from my kid and so I think like we talk about motherhood But nobody wants to tell the truth, because if you told the truth, you think you would have a birth crisis. You think people are worried now. I feel like if moms like told the truth, true, true, nobody would have a sorry. Nobody would have kids. (laughs) Nobody would do it. They'd be like, you know what? I'm a hard pass on that. Forget it. So.
0: Well, I I appreciate your honesty. And in a couple of these conversations I've already have, it it does come out so easily about the mental load and emotional load of parenting that I burden versus what my wife does. And I'm a feminist and believe in women, want women to run the world. And and partially because of all these things that you're talking about, I think that needs to happen. But yeah, becoming aware of it is that is is so true. So I need to see that film from you, but also then you need to make a new one maybe about the real, the real sides of it too, that aren't, aren't the glossy part, because there is the wonderful part, certainly. And I'm sure no one would change that but there are so much especially that men are so unaware of.
1: I know but you're also talking to a woman who is one of the women who could no longer work because of the pandemic because I had to stay home and take care of my kid and become a homeschool teacher and that was the end of me doing stuff out in the world and I feel like there's so many women like me now like I feel like I would have had a radically different answer for you before the pandemic on motherhood because it's it's not so hot now. (laughs) I mean, it's improved, it's improved, (laughs) but the last two years has been really, really hard.
0: I've met your son. You're doing a good job. He's a kick. So uh, good, good work. So hang in there, please. (laughs) Do a good job. All right. Let's move on to then your feature film debut and how did you get into I met you. Let's talk about our backstory. I was teaching at a a school in Montbello called Northeasterly College with an amazing woman who's currently running for city council in district 10, Shannon Hoffman. And she took us to the Whittier Cafe in five points. And you were working out of there on this film. And I remember me and I think it was 15 of my students went there and you were there and we got to watch your trailer live. And when I watched the trailer with running with my girls, it was just unbelievable. And I think really, and I've given you kind of the credit for that sense, I think it clicked in my mind, just the way that women lead differently um, and specifically women of color. And it was something that really made me need to do more to try to, to help empower women in so many different ways, which this podcast is a direct result of that too. So um, how did you get into running with my girls?
1: Oh my God. I feel like every time someone asked me that story, I'm like, I don't even know. It feels like I've always been running with my girls. <laughs> it does. It kind of feels like that. But really, it comes from a podcast. I think ultimately was my my podcast that I, I started. Um, it was called Off Color. And what my original co-host, Dr. Gregory Diggs, who passed away. He was also a Central Park resident. Um, and so when we were doing our podcast, he would always say, hey, I've got connections. I got connections to to Dr. Lisa Calderon and Candy Candice and he would say that. And I like kind of knew who they were and I knew he was excited about them. But I didn't I, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, we'll get him on the show. Put him on the list. Right. We just we were just making lists of our dream guests. And those were those were his two like dream guests. Um, and Dr. Diggs unexpectedly passed away in 2018 um, before I did do an episode with Dr. Lisa Calderon and Candy Adubacca on our podcast. Um, they did come on. And it was, it was very, like, bittersweet to me because, like, these were women that I knew sort of peripherally from the community, but then I started to – develop a relationship, I, I guess, with them. Like I didn't I, I now it's funny it, again, like this is really interesting to me kind of looking back on it now, especially as things are like kind of gearing up again for the municipal elections next year. So I feel like Lisa, I only knew her from from Greg. And then we were friends and she came, she came to, to to a taping of the podcast. That was the first time I met her in, in public. It was actually at Hope Tank, which is no longer I was a business on South Broadway, no longer with us in the physical sense, but I remember that's how I met her in person. And then we just started to be friends. I, I don't know how to like, it's funny cause you think about that, like, oh, how do I know these women? And people really, I, I get asked that question a lot. And I feel like, I feel like, oh, I just knew them from like around the way, around the community
0: one of the things that I loved about the film was just watching the way that these women lead. Can you just talk about that, what you learned from them as they ran their races and um, you documented in this film, what, what, how did you see that women lead differently?
1: I mean, I think part of it was like the, really was like the sisterhood piece, you know, of like, really like supporting each other kind of like behind, behind the scenes and what that, what that can can look like uh, on a campaign even. And I think really just the, like the grit, like the resilience of, of these women was something that really stood out to me. And it was so hard, Dan, I, people don't know. And I feel like even in the film, that was a goal of mine was to show like how hard it was and how emotional it was. And I'm not sure I really succeeded in that because I feel like people still, after they watched it, were like thinking about running and I was like, Oh, <laughs> maybe I made it look too <laughs> I made it look too easy, you know? Um, and so I think like that that resilience was something that really stood out to me. And there is a scene that that is in the film um, that I think, you know, without giving too many spoilers about the film for people who haven't seen it, but um, there's a moment when Veronica Barella, who was a candidate for City Council District 3, You know, where where she's she's actually comforting like her campaign manager and she's such a mom in that moment. And she's so it just even at like the worst time for her, she's still taking care of someone else. And I think that is the difference in leadership in women. And, and of course, and this is something I I will say always, like I'm speaking, clearly I'm speaking in generalizations, like clearly I'm not like all men are trash, even though like I say that all the time, but like, I I feel like women in general tend to do, they just do a little better, that's all, I'm not saying that like all women, you know, are perfect all the time or they can't be corrupted or anything like that, I just feel like what I saw and with the exception of of candy everyone was a mom in my film and i i do think i don't i don't say that to to you know the child free i'm like child free oh my god (laughs) you made a good choice a real good choice (laughs) like (laughs) you know but i do think there's something in that where like We're here for the whole community. We're here for the whole for the whole village, you know? And I and I think like that that came came through to me in the in the filming, in the film, all of it, that these were women and they took care of me, too. And I will say, like, um, Councilwoman Sedebaka, you know, I know she doesn't have kids, but she's she's mothered people over her life also, you know, because you would learn you know, from the film. You could (laughs) glean some of that but it is, I think it's maybe the caring, the nurturing. And that's not to say that men don't care and men don't nurture. Oh my God, I feel annoyed that I even have to say that. So, (laughs) but I do think that that is something to that.
0: I think that is beautiful. And, And I'm with you. I think that the work I'm doing is to empower women. And it's not that men aren't great and there aren't great men, but there's such a power dynamic difference that we need to push it. And I'm okay with, you know, 3,000 years of women running the world. And then we can see, we can compare notes at that point.
1: Just to see how it goes. That's what I always say. I'm like, oh, you know, people are like, well, we haven't never done it. I'm like, let's just do it and let's find out and we'll just see. And if we, if it's really bad, we can switch back or we can go for some kind of gender parity or whatever people are looking for. I'm like, but let's just give it a little try. Let's
0: just try I, it. And I think that, um, with that too, men need to follow women and support women. And I think especially for women who are taking on leadership roles for the first time, men need to be patient. Um, The best way to learn is by failure. And so you know if you've got people in positions for the first time too, failing and learning from that and that experience, men get a pass on that all of the time and women don't get those same passes. So I think that your film and you show these women in very vulnerable moments and you show them breaking down and you show them building each other up, it was so, so powerful. And I was able to take, I think, six of my students there to watch the film at the, the screening, which we'll get into in a minute. And then also I was even able to, because the virtual nature of the, the world now, I was able to have women, one of our women even screened the, the film in Germany when she, where she was, you know, doing studying abroad. And then they had a conversation about it it was just so powerful and we shared that with you. When people responded to this film and specific, specifically young women of color, how did that make you feel that you had put something, worked worked your ass off? You worked so hard to get this film made. And I mean, that, that part obviously was was an insane amount of labor and obviously a labor of love, not for money, certainly too. And so with that, when, when your movie was screened, well, let's get into that first. How was it seeing your film screened at a film festival here in Denver? What was that like?
1: It was, I'm not a religious person or anything, but it was a blessing. And I feel like, you know... Maybe the ancestors were checking on me because I, you know, my husband was immunocompromised and we were very careful throughout this pandemic time and I had a lot of anxiety about going out. I didn't want to do it and most things had been canceled and I just got in on a sweet spot when the numbers were low enough. It wasn't the... It was bef- right before Omicron, <laughs> and so to be able to, to screen my film in person to like a packed audience was incredible, and I appreciated it at the time, but I actually ended up appreciating it more when Sundance, the festival in Utah, um, was supposed to be in person, and it was canceled. And I thought of all the people who had their films that at the biggest festival, like essentially like in the world, like for a certain, you know, kind of film, they were unable to premiere their films to a live audience. And I was able to have that experience, you know, and it was just luck. I know it was luck, but like it was it was so for me to experience my artwork in my home city in a place, in an audience that really wanted to see that film, that had been waiting to see that film um, was so powerful and rewarding to me. And I remember the first scene when people laughed at my own introduction and I felt like, okay, they understand what I'm trying to do here. Because I also feel like sometimes my work is maybe a little bit misinterpreted. because I'm a I'm a laugher and I'm a joker and stuff, but like make no mistake, I'm dead serious about dismantling systems of oppression. So it was really beautiful to see it in that, in that space. And something that you mentioned was the girls, your students also that had were able to see it. That was the, that was the the bump I needed to like carry on because I feel like I'm not gonna start crying although I might. I'm quite an emotional person. but I mean watching those young people's like reviews of the film, oh, I am gonna cry. oh well, uh, was so moving to me. and I, after I watched that long form zoom that you sent us with with the girls discussing the the seeing the film, I literally and my husband we both watched it. we cried through the whole thing because we felt like, Oh, my God, we like did it like I did it. I did. I had the impact. Like, it doesn't matter who else sees this movie anywhere else in the world. Like, I know I made these girls like proud to be from this city. And I made them want to be engaged and want to do work and want to pay attention. And even if it was just like a handful of people like like the work is done, you know. Now, look, you made me cry. That's my move. I make everyone cry in all of my interviews. It's like one of my skills.
0: <laughs> I wish I would cry more. That's something that I've reflected on recently. Is I'm a very, um, I don't know if emotional is the right word. I'm a very because I don't cry ever basically, and I and I reflected. I don't know where that comes from because you I've, know
1: what my grandma always said, "Cry more, make you pee less." So
0: <laughs> well, there you go. But but I I'm very I don't. I'm trying to think of what the word I'm looking for. But like sentimental. And I'm very like I like you're touching me by by talking about that. And and I think that what you did for our women and and for them to see themselves when they don't see themselves on the big screen. And for them to see themselves and the women running for this community. Some of our women even worked for some of the women in the film. And that was powerful. And we've still and never had it. to see me
1: behind the camera. And to see the people who shot the film behind the camera. Because the other thing is, is I told you I was filming most of it myself. When I would crowdfund and raise the money for the good cameras. And the good, <laughs> and the good cinematographers. You know, I had my crew. You know, we tried to, it was all women with the exception of Brandon Carter he he was my one of my my cinematographers but yeah we had we had mostly mostly women and Vince Chandler also a man um but yeah i i felt like that was important too for them to see different kinds of people making films or someone like me who doesn't i don't know what i'm doing I'm just out here
0: Yeah. And I respect that about you too. And that's kind of something I'm, I'm a build the airplane while you're flying it type of person too, which is I've learned there's a lot of negatives to that, but I always also say done is better than perfect. And you need to move yourself forward. And if you don't start now, when will you start? And like with this podcast is, I don't have a huge vision for it, but I, I, but I know we're doing good work. And even if it is for a small audience, we talked a little about who's going to watch this. If it's for a small audience, then that's, Good, and if we can make an impact and have people hear your story, which I think is a powerful one. So take me to the next level is you made this amazing film. To me, it was so obvious that your film should be on Netflix, that the world should see your film, and it does not work that way, right? So what is that process? How did you try to get it to people who rejected you and how did you deal with that kind of crap?
1: No, it's so funny because one of the things that I I learned about from making this film is that most films never see the light of day. I think it's, I read some number and I can't remember what it is now, so like fact-checked me on it, but it's like something ridiculous where it's like 2% of films get distribution that are made when you think of how much stuff is made out in the world. Um, so I had thought, this is what I thought, I thought I would make this documentary and I would sell it and I would sell it to a streaming service. I would sell it to someone and I thought I would make, uh, you know, whatever I thought I would make on it. And then when I finished the project, trying to get distribution, it turned out that I didn't know anything about distribution or sales or how to get your film into a high-end festival um, because that's really sort of the secret um if for any filmmakers or people are interested in it, is you go there's sort of two ways is that if you're an established person you'll be you know you'll be hired to create something and it'll already everything will already sort of be in place the way that you can um sort of break into the industry is through film festivals and there's sort of tiers of the festivals. So something people, you know, like a top tier festival would be like uh, Sundance, uh, Cannes. Um, those are are the two that kind of come to mind. And then you can think South by Southwest, Tribeca. Um, there's, there, you know, these are the high-end festivals that are also serve as marketplaces. So people come to watch the films and then they buy the films. A really great example of that was um, The documentary that won the Oscar Summer of Soul, which premiered at Sundance in 2021 and sold at Sundance for $25 million. The highest, um, prior to that, the highest documentary sale was actually Knock Down the House, uh, featuring uh, AOC and Cori Bush and a lady that lost that we don't know her name. And so, (laughs) sorry, lady. You know what though? We do, we should know her name is totally off subject feel free to edit it out you don't have to but if you want to she tried to she tried to run against joe Manchin. maybe we wouldn't be where we are right now if that lady had gotten the support she needed when she was running for office but anyway so sundance those those festivals um i submitted actually i did submit my film to uh, Tribeca which I thought if I got into Tribeca I would have no problem selling this film and I didn't get in and it was very quite heartbreaking for me actually uh, at the time and I thought okay well this is it so I didn't bother submitting to Sundance I didn't bother submitting to any of the big festivals because I felt like if I couldn't get my film into Tribeca then there was sort of no reason for me to to keep trying to get into the higher tier festivals, I will not say I regret that because I don't I don't live like that. But uh, hindsight is twenty twenty, and I think now I may have submitted to some other uh, festivals. But where, but also this is kind of into the weeds of it. But it's just that many festivals they require a premiere status. For a film. And so, or, and it has to be, have been completed in a certain time frame. So as the time went by, the film, you know, we wrapped in 2019, uh, as far as like filming. And then we were editing and in post-production for like most of 2020, because it takes a long time. I think that people also don't realize how long editing takes and 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 putting something together like that. Or something like that, something that I made is, if you know, which you edit, you know that it was a lot. I'll say 132 hours into 97 minutes.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I think people have no idea. And I think still I have no idea. The amount of editing that goes into it, the, you had great um, text work and the 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 visuals that you added, the music and clearing the music and having that all be legal, um, news clips and stuff like that. There's so many things. And the reasons that you see films at the end, the credits lists run forever because there's so many. And your credits list run forever because you incorporated so many people and got so many people to work with you on this project while you were crowdfunding this money and all that it's like I hope you where you're at now do you reflect again I started this question of, are you a badass or do you see yourself as a badass like when you reflect on the fact that you got a motion length picture hour and a half two hour like film made in professional quality like do you can you believe that you actually did that
1: yeah of course um, of course, I believe I did it. I was there. It was. It was. It was. It was long, and it was drawn out. And now it feels like I'm starting to, to sort of see the the fruit of this labor, um, as we have these these small screenings around. And I will say, just to be, I'm like, oh, damn, you're getting my all my emotions and things out of me. But really, like, the film is not. Yeah, I wanted to see it big and and doing things, but I feel like the people who need to see it are getting to see it like I know there's a screening happening at like a local high school today um, in two parts and so and I'm going to go visit and talk to the class after and so and that's local and th- that's what we want, you know, like we want. First and foremost, this film was a love letter to my community and my activist community and the people who who are fighting in this city for for the most vulnerable members, right? So so to me like it getting to some of the people that it just needs to to get to and I but I at the same time I still feel like everybody should watch it. Like I <laughs> Like I do. I feel really proud of the work and I feel like, you know, the feedback to it has been has been outstanding. Um And so I think that once people see it, but I think this is the case for almost everything I do because I'm not, I'm not a Hollywood, I'm Holly weird, you know, like, like, I'm just like a weirdo that makes stuff, but I think it's important. And so I want to share it with people because I do feel like if one, sometimes I know it's like, it's such a cliche, but sometimes it's like that one person, like, Maybe that is enough sometimes, you know, like we just don't we don't know how we're going to impact people. And I think about, you know, one of your students that that came and we have our own little like relationship now through you. Right. And I've been trying to help her get some, you know, get onto some docs that are working. I'm and I'm affiliated with the Brown Girls Doc Mafia. And so I'm just I just I just think that it's it. it, We don't know. We never know what our work is going to do. We never know how it's going to touch people or change their lives. And I feel like my first project the um, All Mixed Up, which is nowhere. It's not out in the world or anything. We show it at more than one box, you know, once a year or whatever. But I know that people from that film, it changed like the course of their life and their learning and what they decided to do with their lives was simply was just because I took the time to talk to them about their identity. And nobody ever did that before. So in some ways I'm like, I guess I am like a revolutionary, you know, (laughs) like, like, because, but it's sad when you think about it, it's like, people don't want to take the time to hear other people's stories, especially when they are about race.
0: So, yeah, I, one of the things that I hope for in my life is I don't want to be big in any way for like personal stuff, but I would like to have clout where I can connect people with things that can influence them in different ways and positive ways. And your film would be one of them. I do think that everyone should see your film. I think that specifically young women should see your film. And I think that would be so empowering for them. Um, But I think that we're so unaware of of politics and how important local politics are. Um, So saying all of that, now you did decide on a distribution method. Can you get into what that is and then how people can access your film now?
1: Yeah, so my distributor is called Women Make Movies. They're uh, a nonprofit. And so they they work to support women, uh, also non-binary uh, filmmakers who are kind of like me just trying to get their work out into the world. And they are helping me to get just dis- like uh, educational distribution is sort of the the terminology for it. So like they will license the film to colleges, universities, schools, libraries, community groups. Um, and so they they like, for example, we did one in um, with a black women's political action group out of Northern California. And so they they host the screening. Women Makes Movies sort of organizes it for me. And then they they'll if they want to they want me to come speak with the film, then I go do that. Um, and sort of that's it kind of I guess like they just they're putting it out to to those institutions and right now the film is currently not available for like video on demand what you know people are looking for that that a helpful way to think about it again if anyone's like thinking about making a film a helpful way to think about it is like as my film goes through a few of these smaller film festivals and different community screenings and things like that, that's sort of like thinking of it as like almost like a theatrical release. Like remember in the old days when you couldn't get the movie from Blockbuster because you still had to watch it in the theater and it was a long time before it came out on video, or right? And so it's kind of like that um, for independent filmmakers. Um, but Women Make Movies, I mean, I I would say check out their catalog. They have some great films. Um, and so I'm really honored to be, like, included in their catalog with films like Coded, Bias, uh, Belly of the Beast. These are really um, outstanding, outstanding works. Uh, so, yeah, that's kind of what happened to it. But I will say this, like, we don't, nobody bought my movie for $10 million. Nobody bought my movie for $25 million. I, do I think my movie is worth $25 million? Absolutely. Um <laughs> But the truth is, if you don't have a celebrity or somebody like that attached to a project, you, your project probably won't, I mean, it's, it's hard. It's really hard to get a project made without any clout. I'm no, I'm no one. My girls, no one, right? So people are not so interested in our story, but what makes, but I, that's why I say, I'm like, if you watch the film, there's no way you walk out of that film, not feeling something like that. I know. So I feel like for the the Hollywood people, for everyone who, who, who hasn't seen the film, which is like most of the world, once they see it, they understand like, oh, this is like an important piece of work. But I feel like without watching it, it's hard to market even. I don't know. This is like a a weird <laughs> industry like documentary conversation. The other thing though, I'll bring this up as we're kind of I know we're coming up on time, but like I I recently uh there's a paper out. You should check it out. It's called It's the Power of Personal Documentary. And personal documentary doesn't necessarily mean it's like your story, but it's it's about like one specific community or one family you know and so sometimes these kinds of stories it's really hard to get them funded it's really hard to get them out into the world particularly for black creators um and then it gets you know i don't know how to like say like black is the worst (laughs) and then it's like slightly 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 easier for like any other like racial or ethnic group but it's it's not it's not something that people want that gets like funding, and a film like mine is is a personal documentary and and a social impact documentary. And social impact documentaries are the ones that get funded. Those are often also often trauma, racial trauma, being put on a screen versus my story, which is quite inspirational. I think and uplifting, while also telling the truth. Um, and so those kinds of projects don't necessarily get funded. So a project like mine, because I'm not anybody and you know, nobody's gonna buy it, nobody's gonna invest in it, nobody wants to 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 do much with it. And that's also the reality of a lot of films. But I think I think this film is worth fighting for to get it in front of people though. And I feel like that's why you wanted me to come on your podcast. Because <laughs> you you felt the same way. I don't wanna put words in your mouth, but like didn't you kind of feel like, wow, this is something, I think it's it's bigger than me. It's bigger than my vision. It's, you know, it's just to me, I feel like it's this really powerful piece of, of media that I think can have an actual impact on people.
0: I think it is absolutely powerful. And I think that one thing that we've talked about is you don't come out of movies to wanting to act. And this film makes you want to be more involved in local politics. It makes you more aware of how important local politics are. It makes you want to help support women. Um, And it's just, it, it it is incredibly powerful. And I see it as too, like you said, and you've talked to me about this before, is I think you can do this. And that's the goal of this podcast is like micro doing things. And so if you can get the right people and impact the right people who it really does speak to, then it can grow from there. And that's wonderful. But even if it doesn't, if it just hits these people, And really makes an impact. And so I love that you're doing that with you're working with universities. I know now where they're having screenings and I know you've flown all over the country to do those even now, which is, you know, not where you're at with COVID and all that stuff. So you've even put yourself out of your comfort zone to be able to do that because you believe in it so much. And even for, and I know you got feedback that way too, that it's local politics and people don't care about local politics in Denver when they're in other parts. But I don't think that's true because I think these things are happening everywhere in this country and it really needs to happen everywhere in this country. And these stories do really need to be told and you can inspire other people, you can make films. And I know you did it on a much bigger level, but I think one of the amazing things about arts that's coming up is you can now make films lower Um, with a lower budget and be able to capture stories in different capacities and also present them to people in different capacities. And I think that's really powerful too. So the fact that you're going the educational route, that high schoolers are watching this, that colleges are watching this is I think it's going to take a a while. And I I heard that too, is overnight success takes 10 years. And so that part of it is like, I think it's timeless too. I don't think the, and I know it took a long time to do the editing and get everything out there, but but I think it is really timeless. So, So saying that as we are wrapping up, how do you balance this work with still working with this project that you worked so hard on for the next, uh, for the last how many years, but then also moving yourself forward with your other projects? What are you, how are you balancing that? And what are you working on moving forward?
1: I feel like you should have brought my therapist into this call for that. How am I moving forward? <laughs> uh, so I, I really am like, I've been a kind of struggling with that because part of me, you know, I have a little tickle in me. Um to follow this next this next election, uh, Candy is is running again. Hopefully, she'll she'll keep her seat. We have some new new players. You mentioned Shannon Hoffman. She's uh, someone who has joined uh, Emerge Colorado. You know, so so I just think it's like a part of me is like, oh, do I wanna do I wanna like, and if I was doing that, I probably wouldn't tell anyone anyway. Um, and then this other project I've had cooking for a long time. It's a um, in in, it's a sort of a family history and a a more of a personal doc um, that I'm working on with with my cousin, actually. (laughs) And so we just we we we've started it. We're kind of laying out the plans for it. Um, Actually, we have a meeting tomorrow and we're going to be taking a a journey, a road trip through North America, through um, uh, America and also Canada. And exploring uh, race and identity, sort of through a, a familial lens, and so I kind of uh, like I'm like hesitant to really talk about it, but it is a project um, that I ha- that has been that has been maybe my whole life in the making, I think. Um, and so hopefully, hopefully we we'll get this one funded.
0: <laughs> that is that sounds amazing, and I, I look forward to seeing that in the future too. The last thing is, how do people? support running with my girls, how do they should they be talking to their colleges, their alma maters, should they be talking to high schoolers, their kids? Like how do people see this now?
1: Yeah, I mean if you go to runningwithmygirls.com, that's a the website, there's a button on there that's host a screening. And you can click on that button and put in when you when and where you want to host the screening if you um, would be interested in having me come as a speaker or any of the participants. There are typically like fees associated with that, um, depending on the organization and the crowd and whatever, but, um, it's just something that you kind of have to work out with the distributor and that's one way to, to kind of support the project and then also to come to any screenings that are, that are happening. There's virtual ones, there's virtual ones happening. I don't want to say all the time, but I hope by the time this goes to air, the virtual ones are, are sort of happening all the time. They'll be in-person community screenings, but tr- actually anyone can host a screening of the film, can license the film. Um, one of the things that I had intended it to be for and that I wanted it to be for is for like candidates who are running for office, who would like to host a an event that would be a fundraiser, screen the film, right? And, um and then and then and invite people to come and see what it's really like to to run for office and then talk about your campaign and and so I've done it we did it in we've done it at a couple of places in California and it's great because people who are in the middle of running their races, or who are just starting when they watch this film, it really resonates with them. And there are actual real lessons to be learned from the film and things that people can use on their campaigns like right now after they watch it. So I do think like for people who are are into politics right now, um, and, so running with my host hosted screening and that'll sort of, that'll take you to women make movies. You can also go to women make movies um, wmm, I think it's WMM.com, something like that. And then that that's and then also you can request it. The Denver Public Library has a requesting page, and you can request that they purchase the film or, you know, and have it in the in the library. I'm not sure if, it's, if they've gotten a copy yet or not. I think we're doing some screenings, but I, I don't have those scheduled at this time.
0: All right, wonderful. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I enjoyed learning so much even more about you and your work, and I appreciate your time.
1: Thank you so much, Dan, and I, I wish you the best of luck. And I, I really hope you talk to some more badass Beep.